Amen. Good morning to you. Uh, we're going to return to Second Corinthians, our study of that book. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the 10th chapter. Uh, once again, Second Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, uh, who, who are newer to the FAC family, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here, and uh, if you are newer and we haven't had the chance to meet yet, it would be a great blessing to me after the service if you would come up and introduce yourself, make yourself known. Um, I would love to meet you, uh, and so please take uh, take up the opportunity. Um, turning to God's Word now, we will read once again from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read the entire chapter, so starting in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commands. Would you pray with me as we begin our time? Dear Father, we boldly approach your throne and take up your word this morning. And, and as we approach our time now, uh, would we do it with a degree of humility that is needed? Would we recognize that our minds are tainted and distorted by our own selfish ambitions? that our worldview is skewed apart from the knowledge of you, God, and that it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would desire you above and beyond all worldly treasures. Would you be our pursuit this morning, Father, 
as you have pursued us. And would you draw us nearer to you as we commit ourselves to your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, I had a job at a local CVS for a little over uh, two years as a cashier. And um, in my store manager's office, he had a bulletin board. And on that bulletin board, there were a few pictures, uh, surveillance pictures actually of customers. And the reason that he had these pictures posted in his office was because these particular people had proven themselves to be shoplifters. And so he wanted to know their faces. And he wanted to know what they looked like, should they ever return to the store. And he saw it fit to be familiar with these shady characters. In the same way, there were some shady characters hanging around the church of Corinth. And Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians can see these people for who they truly are. And he wants the church to be able to recognize them for the danger that they present. As we've worked through Second Corinthians uh, together, we, we've spoken countless times about these men. These, they were traveling preachers who came in and influenced the church of Corinth after Paul had planted the church there. And uh, these preachers seemed very impressive on the outside, right? They, they checked off all of the boxes that you would hope to have in a preacher. They were articulate. They were well-polished. They looked good. They were very engaging. They were very entertaining and flashy. They had these incredible spiritual experiences, which they claimed was a result of their spirit-filled ministry. The main problem, however, with these traveling preachers is that they were imposters. They, they were not who they said they were. When they came into Corinth, they came with the intention of promoting themselves, elevating themselves. And in order to do that, they needed to completely undermine Paul and his own authority as an apostle. And so they called his entire ministry and legitimacy as an apostle into question because Paul did not stack up when it came to their own evaluation of his ministry. And the Corinthian church ate this up. They bought into the lies that these traveling preachers were selling for a time. And that's what Paul has addressed throughout all of 2 Corinthians. And if you've been walking through 2 Corinthians uh, with us, you know this to be the context in which Paul writes because we've spoken at it at great length. However, uh, at this point, you've had to take my word for it because Paul hasn't really spoken much about these particular men to this point because he had other business to attend to in the letter. But now, as we come into the home stretch of 2 Corinthians, uh, these last four chapters, really, the letter takes a rather ominous turn as Paul pivots his attention to the imposters and he pivots his attention to the unrepentant ones in Corinthians that still sympathize with these super apostles that he calls. Uh, Paul essentially comes face to face 
with his critics and he addresses them in a much more pointed, sharp manner. And um, really, these final chapters that we come to, into, it's a final attempt to call out these guys and then win back the reluctant few within the church, uh, the, the reluctant minority that are still kind of following them or agree with them. And he begins this by painting a portrait of these imposters. He wants the Corinthians, once again, to see these guys for who they really are so that should they return or should they continue to influence, they know what to look for and they know how to identify them. And and Paul paints a portrait, not of their physical outward appearance, but of the inward appearance, their inward heart. And this is where the where Paul wants the Corinthians to look. And so I want to actually start our time in our passage. If you've got this opened up, I want to start down in verse 7, actually. We'll circle uh, back around to verse 1, but verse 7 on through 18 once again gives us the context in which Paul writes. Um, and this is what Paul says in verse 7, right? Paul tells the church in our translation, he says, look at what is before your eyes. But if you were to read the original Greek literally, it reads, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. The Corinthians need to, to look at the heart, not the face. Is what Paul said. You're looking at the face. You're looking at what they're doing on the outside. And Paul wants them to look at the heart because it appears that these imposters challenged Paul's own heart. Right? They didn't only, only challenge his apostolic authority, but also his standing before Christ. Because Paul goes on to say here in verse 7, right, that, that if you are confident, Corinthians, that you are in Christ, then you can be confident that we are in Christ. Because we were the ones, as he says later, that brought you the message of Christ. We're the ones that preached it to you. If you, if you are so confident that you are in good standing with Christ, you can be confident that we are as well. And that Paul is the very one who had the authority bestowed on him by Christ himself. That counts for something. And Paul even admits here in verse 8, maybe I boast a little bit too much. Maybe I do boast about this authority that's been given to me too much. But, but then he reminds the Corinthians that it was the Lord himself that gave such authority, that gave it to him so that Paul could... Why did he give him the authority? So that Paul could... Build up the Corinthians, not destroy them, not tear them down. The, the authority that he received from Christ was for constructive purposes, not destructive ones. Paul wants them to grow spiritually. He wants to grow them in spiritual maturity. Paul has the Corinthians' best interests in mind. That is his heart's desire. But that is not the case with these other preachers. They don't have the Corinthians' spiritual growth in mind. They don't want to build up the Corinthians. They want to build themselves up. They want to put themselves on a pedestal. And so they undermine Paul's authority in the Corinthian church. They need to, they need to tear down Paul and they need to remove him from that post so that they themselves can take up the, the vacancy. However, as we've seen through 2 Corinthians with Paul, once again, being the founding father of the Corinthian church, Paul and this church are intrinsically linked. And so for these super apostles to come in and tear down Paul, 
would be to tear down the church. Paul is trying to build them up. And while it's not implicitly said, it is implied that these other imposters are actually trying to tear them down. And they do this. They undermine Paul's authority by essentially, one of the main charges against Paul is that he is duplicitous. That he acted differently in the flesh when he was present than he did in his letters when he wrote to them uh, from afar. That that, That he was inconsistent with his authority. Paul actually quotes him in verse 10 and 11. What does he write? His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech uh, is of no account. In other words, they were saying that Paul threw his authority around when he wasn't with them in the flesh. He threw his authority around uh, them with his letters. But when it came to in-person interaction, Paul became a coward, that his bark was much worse than his bite, that he seemed very impressive and bold in his letters, but he was a nobody in person. That's the accusation against him. And Paul makes it very clear in verse 11 that he is the same man in person as he is when he writes his letters. And he's willing to be just as bold in person as he is in his letters. But there is something in verse 12, that he's not bold enough to do. He's not confident enough to do. And this is where we see in verses 12 through 18, the true portrait of these imposters, what they're doing and who they all are. Paul says, I'm a bold guy because of the authority of Christ that's been granted to me to build you up. But here's something that I'm not bold enough to do. I am not bold enough to compare myself with these other guys. What they're doing is pretty bold. That's brash, if you will, right? In verse 12, he said, I'm not, he says, I'm not going to play that game. We don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with those who are commending themselves. Paul doesn't want to compare himself with those who are boasting in their ability because he knows it's a losing battle. And here's why. It's a losing battle because they are measuring themselves, Paul says, against each other. They are determining man-made standards that don't really matter. They use themselves as a measuring stick. And Paul says, this is a faulty system that's used only to promote the self. You see, what they were doing is they were, they were grading themselves on a curve, and it's their own curve. They're the ones determining the curve. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that as they measure themselves against other people, as they measure themselves against Paul, as they determine the man-made measurements of what success looks like, they're always going to come out on top. They're always going to look better than everybody else. Of course they will, because they're the ones determining and deciding the standard. It's quite amazing how prevalent that this issue is still even today. How often, how many times do we catch ourselves comparing ministries and determining what a successful ministry looks like based on a skewed grading rubric, based on our own standard of what's deemed successful. Paul says when they do this, 
It's without understanding. Or in other words, it's a foolish thing to do. This is not very smart. Why? Because those standards, Paul will make the case, don't matter. It's a defunct yardstick you're using to measure ministry, and it causes people to boast about things that they really have no business boasting about. But in verse 13, Paul says that there's another way. There's a better way. Paul writes, I have a standard, but it's different from your standard than your measurements. He says, I'm not going to boast beyond my beyond limits like those guys do, but, but I will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us. That's down in verse 13. The verse literally reads, we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure. That's how that literally reads. And you hear measure three times. It's redundancy is intentional. Right, So once again, with this verse, we're talking about this idea that we're talking about a standard, a measuring stick, a plumb line by which to evaluate the integrity of one's work. And such a standard wasn't arbitrarily decided by Paul, but it was given to him by God. God is the one who determines the standard. God is the one who gets to measure the health and success of the ministry. And God is the one that gives him his area of influence, that gives him the the, the ministry. It, It is all originated with God. And once again, it begins with God and it ends with God. And Paul lives within those limits. He lives within the parameters that God has given him. And he boasts in the Lord within the sphere that God has given him. But we must remember as it applies to the Corinthian church, as the first 14 indicates, that that sphere, the measurement by which God apportioned to Paul, included ministry to the Corinthians. Right? So we're talking about authority here. And Paul's saying we are not overextending ourselves like those guys are. We are working within the parameters of what God has given us. And within those parameters, remember, guys, we were the first to come to you with the gospel. We were the first to come all the way to you with the message of Jesus. We were the first ones that God, by his providence, gave you so that you may know Jesus. And that's how we know that God has bestowed spiritual authority to Paul in Corinth and not these other guys. Because it was by his providence and standard that Paul was the one who introduced them to Jesus. And Paul goes on to say in verse 15 that it's his hope that this measuring stick of of sorts that God has given him will actually expand to further regions beyond. But he's going to wait on the Lord, but that is his desire. The problem at hand right now, though, is that these other traveling preachers have gone beyond God's limits for them. They are trying to expand their sphere of influence, not by waiting on the Lord, if you will, but by their own force and by their own underhanded aspirations. Because they measure their ministry by their own standards and not God's, Paul says that they have in turn inserted themselves in areas that they shouldn't have inserted themselves and they have taken credit for things that they ought not take credit for. Essentially, they are operating 
outside of their God-given jurisdiction and then boasting about things that they had absolutely no contribution towards. That's what these guys look like. And then here in verses 17 and 18, if you look, Paul takes aim and he delivers the knockout punch. Take a look at that. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. We must remember that the loudest voice in the room does not automatically equate to God-given authority. These guys, although influential and loud, do not have the authority in Corinth as Paul does. Paul says, it doesn't matter what you say about yourself. Right? Say all you want about how good you are and how awesome you are and how successful you are and how powerful you are. None of it matters. Just because you think you're the stuff doesn't make a difference. It really doesn't. That's nothing but a bunch of hot air because at the end of the day, what you think about yourself doesn't have any bearing on whether or not you are approved, as Paul says. Commending yourself is irrelevant when determining who has authority. No, Paul says the one who is approved, the one who is given such authority is the one that the Lord commands. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. What matters is what God says about you. You see, we are far more insignificant than we give ourselves credit for. And it is critical for us in this day and age to understand that biblical preachers do not draw their authority from any sort of man-made measure. They do not draw their authority from superior knowledge. They do not draw their authority from rhetorical excellence. They do not draw their authority from political power. Preachers draw their authority from God's word in God's word alone. And apart from that, they don't have any authority. In Corinth, Paul's adversaries have claimed authority over this church without God's stamp of approval for the post. And instead, they've presented irrelevant achievements and abilities to support their claim. They have set themselves up to be successful by their own standard and not a divine standard, the divine measuring stick of God. That is the portrait of these imposters. These these are the people that Paul is dealing with. And it's within that context, in light of what's going on with these other preachers, that Paul makes uh, what we call an entreaty. It's, It's a request, a passionate, personal, intimate request Back in verse 1, if we return there, Paul says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. He makes a request to the Corinthians in this passage, and he does it by drawing a a glaring and ironic attention back to the original accusation that we spoke about earlier, that that Paul is duplicitous, right? Look at it again. He says in verse 1, 
I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. He's quoting the opponent's accusation toward him. And here, in a sense, Paul affirms that they're seeing something, right? It's not like they're just completely lying. They are seeing something. Paul's saying, I can understand why you would say that I'm lowly, right? Humble, of low status, uh, servile, if you will, when face to face, but bold when I am away. But where the opposition observes cowardice or weakness is actually something else altogether. Paul, if you notice, quotes his opponents under the backdrop of two attributes of Christ. What they call cowardice or weak or lowly, Paul calls it the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul says, what you experience when I'm with you is not a spirit of timidity. It's not a spirit of feebleness. It's the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul in person with the, with the troubled Corinthians acts as Christ would act in the situation with patience and graciousness and forbearance. But Paul withholds judgment Even though he had the authority, like we said, he withholds judgment on the rebellious Corinthians for a time so that they may be all given a chance to repent. So at the end of the day, they would not be able to come back and say, Paul, you didn't give us enough time. Paul's saying, I'm giving you plenty of time. Just as Christ is kind in his dealings and was not overbearing in his authority, neither is Paul. And so what we see here in the passage with Paul is not some sort of deep personality flaw by any stretch of the imagination, but rather a transformation of Paul's heart. This is a grace that's been given to Paul, a transformation in his life that originated with Christ himself. Because if you recall back in the book of Acts, if you're familiar with Paul's story, before Paul met Jesus, he was ruthless in his persecution of believers, of Christians. He would arrest them. And he had followers of Jesus put to death. In his life, before he met Christ, there was no restraint to this man. His boldness was unhinged. But now, having come face to face with Jesus, there is a meekness, a gentleness in Paul's heart that was not there before. And the fruit of that transformation is that he is giving all of the Corinthians ample time to turn away from false teachers and align their worldview with God. But here is where Paul's entreaty comes into play. Right? He, he writes in verse 2, I beg of you, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some. That's the entreaty. Paul tells the Corinthians, I'm coming for another visit. And that will not be a good day for those other preachers. And that will not be a good day 
for the people within the church that are still buying into their lies and buying into a false gospel. He says, yes, I have acted meek and humble and patient, but I am ready and willing to be bold to enact judgment on my God-given authority, uh, by my God-given authority when I return. He says, I plan on it, actually. There will be people. Let it not be towards you, though. And then in verses 3 through 6, Paul paints a much different picture of himself. Uh, the, The first several times Paul came to Corinth, it was out of meekness and gentleness. This next time, he will actually come as a warrior. He will wage war against what he calls the strongholds that have been manufactured in the minds of those who, if you notice, oppose not him, but according to verse 5, those who oppose the knowledge of God. Paul's motivation in waging war is not because they're coming up against him, even though they are. No, his motivation in waging war is because they are coming up against God. The issue at hand is more than just style or preference or rhetoric. The heart of the gospel itself is at stake here in the church of Corinth. And the military metaphor is fascinating because it actually presents Paul as the aggressor and it presents those who oppose the knowledge of God as the defense. They're the ones on the defense. Once again, he uses the word strongholds. And the picture that we get is that of this huge, ginormous fortress. Those who raise arguments and lofty opinions against the knowledge of God have constructed in their minds entire fortresses as a sort of defense mechanism. We must understand that the unbeliever, whether they realize it or not, lives in rebellion to an almighty God. And in order for one to live in rebellion of an almighty God and still be able to sleep at night, one must set up ramparts in their mind against the knowledge of God. They must defend themselves against the pursuit of God in their life. The only way to justify how I live, the only way to justify what my sinful heart desires is to develop a worldview that doesn't include God and who he says he is. It's it's to form arguments and lofty opinions, presumptions against God. Because if the knowledge of God is real and it permeates my heart and soul and mind, then I can no longer live as I once did with myself as Lord of the fortress. So I set up a defense. I deny the knowledge of God so that you cannot tell me how to live or what to love. Because once again, My view of the world doesn't include your God. It doesn't include Jesus. That is the fortress that unbelievers set up, the stronghold of the unbeliever, and it frees them up to live however they they please. And this is what Paul comes up against as a warrior. 
And he makes it clear that this is not a physical battle that he is fighting, but a spiritual one. His arsenal is not man-made. It's, it's, it's not articulation. It's not physical strength or show of force. It's, it's not by human wit. It's not weapons fabricated by human wit or wisdom. The integrity and the strength of his weapons are, are, are not tested against faulty standards or measures. No, he wields divine weaponry that was forged in the glory of heaven. He has divine power from God. And at its very heart, the weapon he wields is the gospel of Jesus Christ in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this divine power does two things. First, it dismantles such strongholds, such arguments, such lofty opinions, such fortresses that are raised against the knowledge of God. Don't mean, don't take this to mean that Paul is merely here to win an argument or win a debate. Something far more significant is happening here. D.A. Carson puts it well when he writes that Paul's weapons destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. Paul is referring to every sinful thought or pattern that forms a barrier, a fortress between us and the knowledge of God. And the power of the gospel tears down such world, such worldviews. It tears down the high towers that are set against it. And where one once found their security in their faulty worldview, they now find their security in Christ. Now they see the world differently as it should be seen, which is the second thing that this divine power of the gospel does. Once the stronghold is destroyed, once the previous worldview is dismantled, the job is not done yet because it needs to be replaced with something. The, the, this weaponry that Paul uses then takes every thought captive as a prisoner of war and makes it obedient to Christ. One commentator writes that to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ is to evaluate every teaching concerning who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in order to ensure that whatever is said and thought conforms to the character and purposes of Christ himself. It's to take every thought, every bit of our worldview that crosses our mind and evaluate it under the new worldview in which Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's to examine our worldview under the microscope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As one is overtaken aggressively by the soft and warm embrace of the gospel, Christ transforms your old way of thinking, your old way, of looking at the world. He dismantles the strongholds only to install new ones, secure ones in him. And as one final thought I'd like to add, the gospel is the only thing that can take down such fortresses. There is no other power out there. 
that will change worldviews. This is extremely relevant every election season where there are all sorts of worldviews floating around. And we must remember as believers that having a specific person in office or policy in place or even vocalizing our strong stance on the issues isn't going to change anyone's heart. Only the gospel can do that. I fear too many times. We try to work beyond our jurisdiction and we attempt to do the work of the Holy Spirit, a work that the only, only the Holy Spirit can do in changing hearts. And so you see our solution is not to change anyone's mind. Our solution is to give them Jesus. Give them Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do the work because it is the only way that somebody will have a proper worldview is in light of the gospel. So have your convictions, have your political convictions as long as they are obedient to Christ, as long as they've been put under the microscope of the gospel. But let us be more concerned about offering people Jesus and then letting the work of the Spirit uh, add it on their heart. And we can rest assured that there are no fortresses that are too strong, that they cannot be overtaken by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize that we are in warfare. And I pray that we would fight with the right weapons, with divine power, Lord. Lord, we would ask... um, Men and women's hearts can be so hardened. Mine once was. There's not a person in this room that once did not have a hardened heart, a fortress built up in their life. Father, but then by your precious pursuit and by your aggressive grace and mercy, you came and showed us that there is a better way, a way that doesn't lead to death but a way that leads to life in your son, Jesus. And so I would ask, Father, that should there be uh, anybody in this room that still has a fist raised towards you, that still is living within the fortress of lofty opinions and anger and rebellion, Lord, would your spirit touch their heart graciously and show them your face? And would they turn to you? We praise you for this, Father, and in your holy name I pray. Amen.